This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 459 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former CIA case manager and GoRuck co-founder, Emily McCarthy. So we discuss a host of topics in this conversation, and Emily had been stationed in numerous places around the world. So she was able to give us some commonalities, some root causes of much of the issues that she saw in the countries that she served in. We also talk about GORUCK, and this weekend that I recorded this on, I actually did the GORUCK Tribe Reunion Basic and was incredibly humble at how far out of my comfort zone I was pushed. I have not rucked before, aside from one time. So such a powerful conversation, such a great organization and company. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Hit subscribe, leave feedback if you want to. I truly love reading your feedback. But most importantly, leave a rating. Each five-star rating elevates the podcast, making it more and more visible, therefore easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Emily McCarthy. Enjoy. Well, 
Well, Emily, I want to start by saying thank you for welcoming me back to the Champagne Room at Go Rock HQ. Um, so I spoke to Jason last time I was here. We're going to be interviewing you on your own set again, which is funny. And then um, Rich. So for, for people listening, where are we right now on planet Earth? We are in Jacksonville Beach, Florida at GORUCK HQ and very specifically in the champs room. <laughs> <laughs> Without any champagne. Which, uh, yeah, yeah, there's no actual champagne in here, but Yet. Uh, we had a, uh, an employee who worked for us who was a writer for the family guy out in LA, ah. hilarious guy. And he just gave everyone and everything a nickname and they just stuck. So. Beautiful. Well, I know, you know when I ask people, you know, tell me about where you were born a lot of times it's somewhere completely geographical but i know your roots are actually in this area so tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic what your parents did and how many siblings all right so yes so i'm a local girl i uh i grew up coming to the beaches here i lived in town though at the time the beaches weren't very well developed and so my parents decided to to settle um you know about 20 minutes away but uh, I think now I re- everyone's moved out to the beach. So I, I'm kind of like, why did you guys move there instead of here? But we, we spent a lot of time coming to the beach. But I'm originally born in Jacksonville, the Memorial Hospital here in town. And um, pretty typical family dynamic. Have, a, you know, mom, dad, younger brother, four years younger than me. And... Uh, yeah, a very sort of normal middle class upbringing uh, and nothing much to report about it for the first, you know, 20 something years. <laughs> so what about your parents' occupation? What were they mm-hmm. doing? Uh, my mom, uh, she retired a few years ago f- from being a high school French teacher in the public school system. Um, she was also an English major and French major in college. So she taught English initially before she found a French spot, but her heart was with uh was with france so she's my favorite francophile (laughs) um we had a lot of eiffel towers in our house growing up (laughs) and i had to watch (laughs) a lot of subtitled movies which i i appreciate um but i yeah i watched foreign films all the time growing up and just didn't think anything of the fact that it was a rita flick you know uh, which now looking back on it it was kind of unusual i think uh growing up here doing that and um, got to travel with her um, t- on her trips to France, which was great. My dad was a mortgage loan officer, and I never knew what that meant until I actually bought a- my first house. <laughs> 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 so, which I have a funny story about that I can tell later. Um, the, uh, yeah, so I didn't really know, know what he did, but what mattered is that he was really the person in our family who kind of ran things, you know, he, he made our lunches for everyone, including my mom. He kind of got us up in the morning, took us to school a lot. I mean, my mom was great. She did a lot of things, but he was really the catalyst and he showed up to all of our games and practices, was my basketball coach, you know, my brother's soccer coach. He just was always there, uh, very present in, in our lives. And like, it's funny because when he passed away, suddenly we all, it's like everyone showed up the funeral thinking that uh, they were his favorite. <laughs> That's the kind of person he was, you know? Like everyone thought that, no, I had this special relationship with, with Steve <laughs> Dent, so, yeah. Well, that's interesting because that's, 
beautiful when you hear that's happening. And I, I try and do the same thing in, in my son's life. But that's something that you hear definitely affects people when that isn't the case, when they are at all those games. And I remember yeah, myself when I was younger doing, I mean, I won national taekwondo championships. And I think my family came to one of all the, all the fights. And it wasn't like, you know, it was my independence moment too. But yeah, you, you, you kind of have that moment of pride and you look around and you're like, oh, I guess I'm just here on my own. So when you look back to his parents, your grandparents, kind of, did you ever notice or retrospectively kind of analyze what it was about his upbringing that made him the kind of man to be present in his child's life? Oh, absolutely. My dad's family uh, was large family, you know, five kids to, you know, my, my mom and my papa, they, they got married really young, like 16, you know, married until, uh, you know, my papa passed away a couple years ago. And my, my grandmother's 88 now. But they just family was everything to them. And, you know, they all played a lot of sports and just everything revolved around what the family was doing. They were always the house that all the other kids went to, to have dinner at and just just really important in the community, very warm. I We used to go visit all the time when I was younger. They lived in Gainesville at that time. And just that's what I think of when I think of family time. Um, but in contrast, my mother's family was a little less so in that no way, just a little colder, not very expressive, um, you know, lovely, lovely people just, just was different. It was a different environment, a different dynamic. And my mom has said to me many times that she was really drawn to my dad and his family because of the warmth. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways she felt like she, you know, became part of, of the the Dent family, she, um, you know, met my father and her freshman year in college, and so they they knew each other pretty young, and and so she kind of grew up with his brother, you know, his brother and his sisters and his mom and dad. Beautiful. I think it's it's so important. I mean, that's something that comes up over and over again about how we fix a lot of the issues that we're seeing now, and obviously it's to raise kind boys and girls, right. and we'll get to obviously all the different kind of worldly perspectives you had of, you know, pros and cons. But um, I was speaking to uh, Major Jim Campbell yesterday, this, uh, you know, veteran Vietnam vet, Marine recon, you know, legend. And he has this beautiful love story where he fell head over heels for his childhood sweetheart in, you know, early high school. And we, you know, we have this facade of masculinity that you are, this, you know, kind of piece of marble that just walks around everywhere. And, and when you look at the what a what a man or a woman is, is is this hard and soft yin yang that can nurture strong yet compassionate children right and and you know we have this tendency i think in modern days to outsource everything right oh you're having a problem with your your kid you're going to outsource them to therapy or you're going to you know try to find a tutor to help them with their homework and i think when you really think about it like what they need and want is your time, you know? So granted, there are limits to that and, and not everyone can do that. And so sometimes you do have to, to to get an expert to come in or, you know, if you don't, the kid gets so good at a sport and you're like, I can't be your coach anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need you need some someone who really knows what they're talking about. 
and and I, but but showing up you can still show up in other ways you know just just knowing that like my mom and dad were there for me at at my games and even if i wasn't you know the best or something they just knew it was important and and i liked you know looking back it it was time well spent absolutely that's one thing there's always that kind of everyone gets a trophy kind of belittling um and a perfect example tomorrow 8 a.m there's going to be a bunch of people showing up to put themselves through hell and you know you go to the spartan races and these the kids races and they've been up you know driving up to wherever it was at eight in the morning and you know now we're out in the cold and the mud now only one's going to win but kudos to them all for showing up and going through that. So I think that there's that extreme as well. Like if you're not going to win and don't even bother, it's like, well, no, you know, you, like you said, as a parent, it's the same thing. You may not be able to be there all the time, like our professions, you know, but when you can, showing up is, is very important. And I think encouraging kids to participate and not be focused on winning and winning that bloody trophy, I think is is the actual message. And if if you don't win the trophy because you gave up and you didn't put work in, that's different. But of a group of whatever, only one person, can, only one team wins a Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. Should all the other teams just hang their head in shame and you know go walk into a gas chamber? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> you know we're proud of right. them all. The, you know, the sports and you know other activities are so much more about than just the winning aspect. And I'm I'm, I'm saying that as a very competitive person. You know, growing up, like I. I always want to race. I always want to see who can do it the fastest. I want to see, you know, I, I like that aspect, but that's that's not the enduring qualities of 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 why why you're doing these things. I mean, when I think about my time, you know, running in college, like I don't run that I don't run that fast or or that much now, like I did then. But the friendships that I have from that and the what I learned about myself by you know showing up to the practices and terrible weather and you know running running those repeats and you know going towing the line when you're like you know frightened to go run a race and they, these are these are in, you know character building moments and 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 it's often better if you're doing those with with someone who like you said who's recognizing it who's seeing like wow you know you you ran better in that race than the last one, Emily, and I noticed, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. It's it's about being seen and appreciated and loved. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the other thing is the, the knock-on effect. So if you're discouraged from playing because you are not the best, then that's going to discourage you from exercise, and, yeah. you know, versus you just learn how to enjoy the journey that is playing a sport, that is training for a sport. It doesn't matter if you didn't make the high school team or, you know, you broke your ankle in college because you heal up and then you go back to it and find the local league or whatever. But I find that a, an observation as an Englishman in the U.S. is we have elitism in school and college and then a complete hard stop where it's a lot of Uncle Rico stories and very, very deconditioned <laughs> people, Rico. you know. So and that's that. not me being patronizing. It just it is, you know, yeah. if you were that good of an athlete you know, why did you stop? And I think it's because they took the fun out of it. Yeah. Instead of keeping the play in sport. Right. I, I love hearing you say that. I actually um, was really close with um, this Irishman who I who was a head coach at uh, the school I went to. And then I became like an assistant coach, you know, after college. And he he's super successful. I mean, our, our team has won, you know, double digit state championships, you know, 
plenty of um, athletes going to run in college at, you know, top level. And yet his, his uh, goal in, in how he designed, you know, the season and the practices and, and what I got a glimpse into and in helping him execute, execute his plan was that it's about what are, what is going to carry on? You know, are, are we establishing something with these, you know, young women, these girls and, and, and when we got to coach the boys as well, but uh, you know, what are, we're building lifelong, a lifelong love for running. And like you said, being outside exercise and it's this social fitness that's, that really is important, I think, for someone's well-being. And, you know, it doesn't mean you don't put the work in and you don't want to compete when it's time, but there was always this art and science balance that he, that I think he just navigated very well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the tribal element, which is obviously why I'm here, tomorrow we're going to be the, the tribe reunion, you know, basic rock. Um, but yeah, I mean, being part of a team. And right. again, even if you don't win every single time, as yeah. long as you're training together, as long as you're working hard, as long as you're picking up, not belittling the person that stumbled, that fell, that dropped the ball, whatever it was, then, um, you know, there's so much to that. And and if you, again, the focus is purely on, on the win, then you're missing that intri- entire tribal element. And, you know, once right. you leave that team, then again, you're out in the wilderness wondering what the hell just happened. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're doing the event. That's going to be really fun. Uh, I do think that, you know, once you get out of organized sports as a kid, there's a there's a void for that. And I think people really crave that interaction, you know, with people and, and you know, having it just be a, like you said, it's it's fun. And it's, you know, it's pushing you, but it's it's also connecting you with with others. Absolutely. Well, another thing listening to your interview on on here and, and glorious excuse me, Glorious Professionals podcast, the Gorak one, um, is there seems to be an element of altruism that was present early on. And you know, you were you were wanting to go into MSF, Doctors Without Borders. So before we kind of progress into your career journey, where did that come from? Was that instilled through your parents again? You know, that's a good question. It, it must have been, you know, I think, um, you know, m- but it wasn't, it wasn't heavy handed. It was, you know, my mom was just always connected to the public school system. And it, it was, um, you know, it was an area of town that seemed to just continue to like be hurt economically. There was a lot of white flight away from the, the schools in the inner city that, you know, people left for the beaches. And, you know, it just was really grounding, I think, to grow up with her being exposed to that. And then, you know, there were opportunities that I had to, you know, go to service projects or to see how other people lived. And she was she was good about keeping that, being mindful about it, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that, like I said, was like, you know, this is why we're doing this. It just was something mm-hmm. integrated. So it was, it was shown. Yeah, it was shown, not told. And I think that's, that's important, you know, as a parent to not over be overdoing it you know like trying to explain everything like let let kids see it and you know gravitate towards it on their own so I did and you know I did a lot of service work through various you know means in uh, middle school and high school 
Um, I actually, someone told me it was on some committee for the college I got into. They, they said that they were really impressed with my, my service background. And I, 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 I made me proud. You know, I was glad that that was what, you know, sort of maybe, you know, move my name to the top of the list of getting selected. And, you know, the college I went to, Georgetown University, it has this, you know, it's run by Jesuits and it has this service um, theme to it. And I, I really, I really enjoyed my time there because of it. And I did a lot. I thought um, as a college student to stay engaged on that level, I, I um, tutored these Ethiopian um, immigrants, um, these young girls. And I worked with some El Salvadorian children when I was there, you know, helping them with their homework because, you know, they, they show up and they're immersed in this culture and it's hard to figure out, you know, they need some language skills on top of, you know, everything that's going on. And then, you know, helping adults, uh, adult immigrants study for their citizenship tests. And there were just a lot of, I loved being up there because there was just a lot of opportunity to, to get involved. And I did. Um, but yeah, so the the service element has always been there. So as I was going through college, by the, my senior year, myself and a few friends, we we decided that we didn't want to kind of jump into the rat race. We wanted to do something, it was a volunteer service. And uh, I was really drawn to this. And we, we created a, a club <laughs> in the spring of 2001. And we called it the... Uh, um, I eat investment bankers for breakfast club. <laughs> it's a short, short, snappy title. <laughs> yeah, short and snappy. Um, and we would meet in the library and, you know, this is kind of like pre-Google search in- engine. And, you know, we would kind of pull together resources about, okay, well, we're going to, here are the, the list of, uh, you know, opportunities to volunteer, you know, post-college and, um, you know, make some phone calls and we'd regroup and decide like, okay, well, this one gives you a stipend. This one's one year, this one's three years, you know, and what, what the commitment looked like and what, what kind of where in the world you want to go and ended up, um, going to one of those, uh, those organizations in Ecuador through Catholic relief services. And it was life changing, you know? I mean, you think, you think, you know, in high school, you're like, I've all right, I'm I'm grown up now, right? I'm going to college. Then you're in college and you're like, well, now I'm really grown up. Well, no. I mean, those were just, you know, minor sort of progressions. And then this was like change your life, change the course of your life, um, kind of a, a year that I spent. So it was intense. I, I always tell people like being a volunteer is the is the you know, the, the hardest I've ever worked. <laughs> I was like, I felt like I was on twenty four seven. You know, there's always something to do and someone to to assist or help out. And, you know, next thing you know, you're you're running after school projects, you're teaching, um, you know, English and gym classes to elementary schools. And then I'm teaching English to women at night, you know, running, running all these different activities and things like that. It was great, but exhausting. So that's that's where I really kind of, you know, got my feet wet. Now, before we go to, because I want to explore, you know, that experience, but um, yeah. the the kind of passport for you was the language. So with mm-hmm. your mother being a French teacher, what is her philosophy and yours now on when we should be teaching a language? Myself, mm-hmm. I was very lucky. I, I, it wasn't the normal British education system, but I went to a private 
interesting education. A private junior school that was quite la-di-da and then a very kind of rough secondary school. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that private one, they started us on in French when we were, I want to say, like five or six. Oh, nice. So super early. Right. Um, and then, but then when you come here, I think it's it's more of an elective in high school, isn't it? Yes. To do do Spanish. So what's again? I'm always looking for <laughs> not not bitching, but yes. proactively, what would be the best way of setting our young men and women up to be close to bilingual by the time they get oh, to gosh. the workforce? Well, I mean, I was I I was a like linguistics major. You know, I mean, I I was in the linguistics program at Georgetown, and you know all the all the data, all the science says that you have to start early. Like it's just after 13, there's a, there's a huge drop off on the, what you can acquire as a, as a language. So you have, you know, you have to go hard, go fast, (laughs) you know? Um, I think it's, I think it's hard though. So I have a bilingual daughter. Um, she's, speaks Portuguese and English. Oh, really? Portuguese. That's right. Cause that was your, Mm -hmm. your husband at the time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So she was born in Brazil and I lived there for, three plus years um, with her and but you know so she is uh, bilingual and you know she gets a little shy about it but as soon as she's you know in Brazil she goes for you know large stretches of time during the year during the summer and over the holidays you know it takes her maybe a week or so and then she's like you know gets back into it right Um, but she doesn't like to speak Portuguese with me you know she wants me to speak English to her and that she made that evidently clear uh when once when she came back from a trip to brazil she was there for almost nine weeks she came back she was three and she got it's like she got stuck in portuguese mode (laughs) it was like she for three weeks afterwards all she was speaking was portuguese it was hilarious i mean pg would just say things to people and they'd be like what are you what is she saying (laughs) i would translate for her (laughs) but it was a it was awkward but kind of cute um so i I was kind of sad when it stopped but you know, but my, my my other children, they had some babysitters, nannies that were Spanish speakers, but, you know, it, it's not the same for them because they weren't completely immersed in it, you know? And so my recommendation to people, and uh, take it for what it's worth, you know, I'm, I'm daughter of a language teacher, studied languages, uh, used them in my job, and then um, have a bilingual child, but I'm not an expert on this, but I, I have some anecdotal um probably things that have helped me. Yeah, this is my personal experience. But I think that if you're really interested in, um, you know, as a parent, your child learning a language, I think you need to do a couple of things, right? You need to try to recreate that immersive environment as best you can. It's not going to be perfect, but you have to, um, you know, they have to be, read things in the, the language of, of, of choice and, and they have to listen to things in that language and they have to, um, you know, uh, speak in that language. So, and speaking is the hardest, of course. But you know, when they're so young and they're not literate, you just need to you need to you know put on music and maybe put on a show or talk to them as best you can about it and integrate it into you know their life. But really, the the best way to do this is to actually go to places where they're going to be forced to speak. Or, or put them in an environment, you know, a lot of people have, um, you know, their grandparents or even their parents or, you know, especially here in America are coming from a different place, like put them in that environment. You know, I have a friend who is Persian and, you know, her mother and, and um, father both speak um, Persian, uh, Farsi, and they, um, 
they, she makes sure that they only speak that with her children, you know, and that's, that's good. That's how they're going to learn. Because yeah, they'll get their English from outside the household. Oh, yeah. 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 So, yes, it's, it's hard, though. It's hard to do it because you have to be really committed to it. Um, when I lived in Brazil with my young daughter, um, I was, it was very clear that I only spoke English to her and her dad, to this day, only speaks Portuguese to her. So that's just how she knows what to expect. So it's helpful if you have native speakers, you know, or someone who's, you know, native level proficiency yeah. in that. In well, it language. gives you a good excuse to go on vacation yeah. to a country outside of your own kind of realm as well. Because yeah. we, we learn French, but again, I, I, I think I learned more on, on the exchange program I did with a, with a family friend than I did, you know, in a whole semester at school. And the yeah. same skiing with my German and living in Japan for a while. I, you know, I, I was... I wasn't around that environment because I live with a bunch of Americans and Australians. So it didn't, it didn't gave take. me a huge mm -hmm. comfort zone. But, you know, when I was out in the, in the towns, they didn't, none of them spoke English. So it was kind of a, you know, I guess a quarter immersion. Yeah. But, Honestly, but, I think some of those language programs through schools, I, I was a little bummed because I wasn't able to partake because I was uh, on the track team and, you know, had to make a decision that I wanted to stay on the team. But I think in retrospect, like, you go with those little bubbles and if you don't break out of that bubble, you're not getting the full immersive experience. You know, I mean, I've went on language exchanges um, where I only spoke the language and like by the time, you know, it's time to go home, you're dreaming in that language. And that's, that's where you need to get. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So. Well, it's interesting with this project I have now, one of my goals is to, you know, inter interview people, from all countries, but especially in, in the emergency services. Mm -hmm. So now it's given me a different why of learning these languages again and brushing up. I want to go to Pompier de Paris and, you know, mm -hmm. speak to some of those guys. And the interview won't be in French because it won't help many people listening. Right. But at least you can kind of have, show the respect that you've learned some of their language and you know, interact before you sit down. And probably their English will be a thousand times better than my French. But You know, but it's the effort. You have to make the effort. And, you know, I think... Uh, you know, I, I've often thought that I was really at first, at first I thought when I went into the government that I, I didn't have important languages. I didn't have, you know, the skills that were needed and that were high priority, you know, st national strategic level. Um, but in, in actuality, I found something different. It's so the languages that I know or you know, in, in languages are, it's like anything, you have to use it or you lose it. And, and, you know, but it can come back quickly, especially if you have a, a, a you know, a strong base, but you know, French, Spanish, Portuguese, English, the interesting thing about that is, you know, I was able to go to a lot of places and, and I can, you know, work and operate in a lot of different countries because a lot of those, the countries that speak those languages in South America and Africa, they're, they're not, you know, they're not first world countries. So not everyone will know English. You know, you go to Europe, you go to other places, they're going to, they're going to, they're just going to default to English, mm, it's right? It's their second language. It's their, you know, they, and they, like you said, they often have been studying it since a young age and they can speak it better than, than your version of whatever their language is. Right. And, you know, I always have this problem going to France. Like they don't ever want to speak French to me. You know? <laughs> you go, oh, that's cute. I'm always like, let's stick with English. Dude, when you buy a <laughs> ticket to the United States, then we'll speak English. And I bought my tickets. <laughs> let me speak, <laughs> let me practice. But yeah, they would just always give you a hard time. And then, you know, it's not even about getting corrected. They're just rude. You know, they don't even want to engage. But but when you're in Africa 
and the only language that you have in common with someone is French, like you're gonna you're gonna make it work, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I I actually found it really fun to be able to to use it, um, you know, and it it helps that there are languages that. I think are, are relatively easy, you know, to, yeah. to pick up and you can get to a level where you can converse with someone um, and it's not tedious. Yeah. No, I used, got to use my French in um, a lot of the Haitians that, that mm, we had as, and patients. So, you know, yeah. they're speaking Creole. Obviously, there's an African um, mm-hmm. French blend, but that was our mutual point that we could actually converse yeah. with the French that I had. And again, I'm not fluent, but it was to the point where I could, you know, do an assessment, tell them what was going on. You know, find out if there's someone in the house with a gun, whatever, whatever yeah. needed to be, you know, determined. Yeah. But um, yeah. When I mean, it's we forget how how important it is to break the language barrier and how many, mm-hmm. you know, sadly, how many medical malpractice or officer-involved shootings or any of these things have come right. from miscommunication, especially in the military. You know, with uh, with a language barrier. Right. When I that reminds me, when I was in um, Brazil, I had a contract with um, the Brazilian government to basically teach French to their, you know, special forces officers who were deploying to Haiti um, with the MINUSTA, with the UN there. Um, and so that was that was fun because, you know, I knew I, I knew going into it that like, guys, this is this is French. It's not it's it's it's, it's not Creole. So you're going to have to you know, use what you can. But, you know, the Brazilian soldiers, they're actually, you know, I think speaking Portuguese, it lends itself to be, you know, they could easily pick up the French. So mm. they, they progress very quickly. And and I think it, it was useful for them. Yeah. I know they remember a lot of the Haitians would be shocked at this pasty, you know, what they thought <laughs> was an American because they don't know better. Yeah. Um, suddenly started speaking French to them. But yeah. Well, going back to Ecuador, um, Coming from the Jacksonville area, I know, you know, you said you weren't from a you know, very affluent family, mm-hmm. but, you know, not starving in the U.S. What was the poverty or the things that you were seeing? And then as you were there longer, what were the roots of the problems that the Ecuadorian people were suffering from? Right. Gosh, I, you know... I felt that, you know, after I lived there for a year, I was, a, I was an expert, you know, on all things Ecuadorian, but I've, uh, you know, it's been a while. It's been 20 years since I've been, since I've been there, but I still can think about it. So yeah, what are, what are the roots of the problem? I'll just go there f- first, but you know, I, I find that there's just a level of corruption in some of, of these countries that is, is just brings ways the country down and it, it it unfortunately clouds a lot of the good things that are happening and it and it's it's very um it's it's, distru- it's super destructive um and that's upsetting um because it just invades everything um you know it makes the education not not work it makes the healthcare not accessible to everyone and you you you, t- you keep having these haves and these have nots and you know i I really, when I was there, got into, um, you know, like kind of like, uh, what was it? It was called the liberation of the oppressed. Some sort of communist writer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a communist, but, um, but, but it's, you know, it's important to understand like where it's coming from and, and, you know, why, you know, why people were wanting that sort of, um, I mean, I can talk more about that, but uh, the, so when I got there, 
it was, it was, we were in um, Guayaquil, which is um, a large city on the coast. And, um, you know, pretty, about eight hours bus ride from Quito to give you some um, geographic understanding. But the, the town we were in was outside of Guayaquil and it was called Duran. And I understand today that it's been, it's changed a lot, but it was a, you know, an uh, impoverished suburb of this large city, dirt roads, people living in huts, you know, like the most, you know, the most sort of poverty I'd seen to that point in my life. And, uh, it was, it was shocking at first, you know, it's shocking to see how people live and live in one room and they're hand to mouth, um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's like a weird thing. And like the more time you spend, it's like you almost get used to it. And you almost, not in a, not in a, like, this is okay. But you just sort of see how it, people make things work. And they're so resilient. And, you know, it's funny to see like, you know, what people spend their money on too, right? And it's, um, you know, they always say like, what do people buy when they get disposable income? Like the, one of the first things they buy are disposable diapers, <laughs> you know, and you know, everyone has a TV and now everyone has cell phones. And it's just like, what, what are, what's important to people isn't necessarily what you think. Right. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about people and I mean, my faith was challenged. My ideas on, you know, what, what is right and what is wrong were challenged. And, you know, even service, like, what does it mean to serve someone? And, you know, what do you do when, you know, what, 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 what is the right thing to do? Like when someone asks you for money, you film, film yourself, giving it to them. And then you put it on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) I have never done that. (laughs) Right. But that's, I mean, gosh, like, Instagram didn't exist then, but I'm, I'm older <laughs> than that. But I hear you. Like, I hear what you're saying. Like, it's it's kind of upsetting, mm-hmm. you know? So, but for me, it was like, I I mean, we have like all these debates about this because I lived in this intentional Christian community and all of these debates about what was right and what was wrong. And I don't have the answers. But what I did find is what my kind of take on it was that I know that by giving someone money or food is not solving the problem. I just need to know that. I need to I need to realize that. That being said, like I tend to think of it from the person who's asking. I think that it must be humiliating to go to someone and say I need help. For whatever whatever's driving that, whether it's a scam or they really need it or they're being forced to do it because they're in, you know, some terrible, you know, you know, uh, pimp life, you know, whatever. And, but so I just try to say like, I don't know. I don't know what's driving that. I just know that they're here right now in front of me asking me for something and that I have. And so I just try to put it like that. And that was just my justification. That's still my justification today, you know, and I took that to Africa and I, I take it to, you know, where I am today. I mean, even when I see, I, I saw something the other day. What was it? Oh, like a local Instagram account basically outed some, you know, some guy that walks around with a sign. They were like, oh, I saw this guy over here the other day and now I saw him over here. It's a scam. And I'm like, really? 
<laughs> that's what you want to post about? Mm-hmm. Is this really productive? Like, oh, right, you found this guy. Like, I mean, he's, I don't care. Like, he's out on the streets. Yeah, like, he's still, still in the sun for hours on end, you know. That's a pretty terrible existence, you yeah. know. Like, he can't possibly, like, he can't, He's I don't not, know. He's not living his best life. Yeah. And like, <laughs> what, they say. what are you doing? Like, you're telling people like, oh, stay away from him. Like, don't help him. I, I don't know. I just got kind of grossed out by it. <laughs> well, do you know who Wayne Dyer is? It's funny. I, I ask people. So, so mm-hmm. he, I think I've only met like one person that actually knew who he was. <laughs> but um, I don't even know. I think he was on, I think he was on Oprah. My ex actually told me about him and I mm-hmm. just got totally sucked in. Sadly, he passed away from leukemia a few years ago. Oh. But imagine a white Deepak Chopra. Oh, okay. It's the best way to describe him. <laughs> so just generally spiritual, reads all the doctrines from all the religions, pulls out the common denominators. And I remember listening to him and, and he was talking about, you know, giving to to someone, you know, someone who was, uh, you know, a light. And his whole thing was, you never know if that one moment of kindness and compassion is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah to send them into a better direction. And I used to say the same as a, as a paramedic. Sometimes, you know, you have these, what we call BS calls, but mm-hmm. especially if it was, you know, someone from the streets, whether it's homeless or, you know, whatever, gangbanger even, you might be the first person that's shown them kindness and compassion in a long, long time. And that might be all it takes to have some faith in humanity to start steering the right way. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of an Ecuador I got really close with a lot of people in the community and it caused some friction on the inside of the house, you know, with some Americans. They thought, you know, that wasn't, you know, they wanted to tell me I shouldn't do certain things and whatever, you know, who knows. But the, but I did have like, there was like a moment, like an example of something that happened a lot, like things like that is that I would have, you know, the child that I'd be working with an after school program, you know, Next thing I know, I'd, they'd bring me to their house and, and I'd, I'd get to meet their older brother who was in a gang. And and then he would show me like, you know, this one case, he showed me where he had a bullet lodged in his leg. And I was just like, all right, well, meet me tomorrow at the clinic, you know, pay 10 bucks to get that removed for you. Right. And it's like, who am I to judge? Like who this, what this, I know he wasn't, you know, like you said, you know, that showing compassion you know i could have just ignored him and thought like well he you know he deserved that you know because he's living that life but i didn't i didn't know who he was and you know this is not i didn't do this to be like oh look at me but it was just like an interesting way of like interacting with people it's like hey you you actually are asking me for help if i have it within my means why wouldn't i try yeah well i think the perfect example and i just watched um uh, sea spiracy, hmm. which was one of the documentaries on on fishing. Right. Um, obviously, every documentary has a has a lean. Yes. <laughs> but um, it was yet another um, perspective on basically the birth of the Somali pirates mm-hmm. and how that came of basically their waters being poached by industrial fishing, and so they were basically you know starving, and therefore that led them to to less honest professions. And I think it's very very easy to point at the the addict or the homeless person or the prostitute or whoever it is and be like, oh, I can't believe they're doing that. That's not godlike or whatever. <laughs> but you reverse engineer to where they got to that point and you put yourself as a toddler in that same position, you would be that person there. 
It's just circumstance. So getting to the root of some of these issues and addressing the root is how we fix the, the violence at the Mexican border. I mean, all these things that we're seeing is, you know, I mean, I'm, I talk about this all the time, but to me, the prohibition of drugs, of addiction, is the cause of so much death in this oh. this planet. Yes. But, um, yeah, so, so with that being said, with you being in Chad and, and Ivory Coast mm-hmm. and um, Ecuador, what were some of the common denominators that you saw that created poverty, violence, all those things, regardless of, you know, where on the planet it was? Yes, I... You know, you talking about Somalia and, you know, the root causes of like what caused what made these people turn into pirates, you know, and it's, you know, when I went to Chad, first of all, it just blew Ecuador's poverty like out of the water. I mean, it was just so intense. I mean, I I think if you look on a list like Chad's like at the bottom, you know, one of the, the it's always in the bottom three. You know, small is down there too in terms of like most failed states. And, um, you know, I, I, I read some books before I went and, you know, learned that these people were warring with each other <laughs> and, you know, because of these basic needs not being met, right? We're talking about access to water. <laughs> we're talking about access to food. So watching your family starving or dehydrating to death, basically. You know, I, I would become a rebel too, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if that, was that my, I mean, I think, I think it's easy for us to sit and, you know, here with my here. Starbucks next to me. <laughs> it's easy for us to say like, well, you know, they could, you know, if only things would be better. It's like, we are only a few layers removed from that sort of anarchy and that sort of desperation. And I think, you know, if you didn't feel a tinge of that during the pandemic or you have never felt that, you know, during a hurricane or some sort of natural disaster, that sort of that level that how quickly things can devolve with humanity, you know, you you need to inoculate yourself. You need to watch something or realize that this is the bottom can drop out quickly. And I'm not trying to be a fear monger here. I'm just I think I'm trying to be a realist. But in terms of. You know, I think it depends on where you are in terms of what are the root causes. But at the end of the day, it, it, it you know, like because it could be like a colonial hangover, right? I think uh, where I was in, in Africa was a lot of problems from French colonialism. Well, my, my forefathers are, you know, responsible for a lot of that around planet Earth. Yeah. And, and you know, I have a lot of thoughts on on that because i think you know not all colonialism is created equal um i i think um as brutal as the portuguese were and raping and pillaging like they got in they got out the healing happened right these those countries were able to say all right let's move on you know and but these insidious um sort of i think i think the in a lot of ways it's even worse when you're pretending to to say like, oh, you're one of us when you really never believe that deep down. So I think that uh, happened in French West Africa. And and even like in British, the the countries where the British colonized, they kept things separate, you know? And it, you know, on the the surface, you can say like, oh, that's so terrible. And there are bad things about it, right? But, But the process for, you know, a country or a people to, you know, regain their own identity comes back faster or stronger than than one where it's like oh you're little french men and women when they're never actually going to be no it was funny with um with the british i mean i got to to witness 
you know, quite a few colonies, I guess. But um, if I never got to, I had a ticket for India and I had to, hmm. to I got hired in, in Japan, so I ended up living there. But um, I would say that was one example where it wasn't, you know, a good transition. Yeah. yeah. But it makes me laugh because the best one I've, I've, I've seen is um, New Zealand. Yes. But I just have this image of all my, you know, hmm. crooked teeth forefathers going on and being faced with those Maoris <laughs> getting ready to kill them. We're like, um... Hello. <laughs> you want to just be friends? We take it back. <laughs> Why are you dancing like that? I, um, you know, Ghana is a good example, I think. Um, you know, I was right, it was right next door to Cote d'Ivoire. I spent some time there. It was like, across the border, it was like going to a different world. They, they, there was just this energy. Things were progressing. They, obviously, they had a, you know, difficult, some difficult times in the past, but there was this idea that we are proud of who we are and our heritage and we're strong and, and, and we're the black stars. And there was just a lot of energy and, and positivity going on there. Whereas like Cote d'Ivoire, you know, coming off of a civil war, which people mischaracterized as being religious when it wasn't, it was about power. Well, not just to interject for a second. Yeah. That's that's one thing, even when I was talking to um, Major uh, Capers yesterday, one observation I've made recently is even if you look at slavery here, there's this misunderstanding that everyone in America benefited from slavery. No, they didn't. Only if you owned that plantation that you made human beings work for free did you gain. And there might have been a ripple effect of then that money is spent in local stores or whatever. But there, there's very few people gaining from from very, very massive things. And you can call it religion, whatever, but at the end of the day, it's greed and power that yes. I see over and over. And, and even with the most recent things, yes, you know, whether you're BLM or whatever, you follow that money trail back. There's a few people that are gaining from all these so-called movements that are instigating people to do all these horrible things and they're just sitting at the back counting their money, whether it's you know, illicit drugs, whether it's you know, some religions. Right. I totally agree. The... The root causes come down to selfish, selfish desires to, to have more power, to have, you know, to have more of whatever resources. And I think it's, it's upsetting because I don't think it needs to be that way necessarily. I think, you know, the, there's enough to go around for everyone. And I think it's always better when people collaborate. I mean, we see this even at GORUCK where, you know, we'll, we'll be interested in working with someone and they'll be like, oh, well. We just found out you make you make boots, so we can't really work with you because we make boots. And it's like, really, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like yep. why? So I, I, I often think of countries as like they can they're like people, you know, and they have personalities, and you know they often, uh, you know, act irrationally like people do, and it's it's really it's really sad for me to to see, you know, countries that have potential like Cote d'Ivoire. I mean, Cote d'Ivoire is a beautiful country and it's got a lot going for it. And yet they're just, they continue to be mired in, you know, tr tribalism and, and, and power hungriness and, you know, people from afar pulling strings, you know, and, and it's, it's really, it keeps the oppressed down. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, it's divide and conquer too. It is. It the more, is. The more negatively tribal, I mean, there's positive tribalism mm -hmm. I talk about all the time, but the more negative you are, the more you're like, oh, you're not like them and you're better than them. Right. 
the the more chaos you create. I mean, when I was there, the the big initiative was the identification of people. People literally did not have a document that would say their name. They they didn't exist, and that there was uh, there were people in power that that wanted that to continue because that you know allowed them to remain in power. I mean, Laurent Bagbo. I mean, uh, do these these Machiavellian creatures you know that will do anything to stay in power? I mean, I was when I was there, they were having this you know. Uh, you know, the reconciliation with the rebels and trying to come up with a coalition government and, you know, the um, Soros, who is, you know, supposed to be, you know, the the prime minister, you know, uh, from the rebels who's going to, you know, lead the country and with Bagbo. I mean, there was assassination attempt on him and his plane and, you know, his entire crew just blown up. He, he I think luckily he wasn't on it or something. Um, and it just they didn't they were, you know, it's just a hit. You know, it's just, and and so the, the 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 scary thing is that these things aren't just isolated to a country in Africa. These mm-hmm. exist everywhere. Well, I mean, we lost our president, you know, a few <laughs> we, decades ago to assassination. Right. These yeah. happen. I mean, this 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 happens everywhere. It's just, um, you know, some of it's worse than others, or some of it's more obvious, you know, than others. But yeah, I I. I I do agree with you. I think that it all boils down to power, and um, it's it's upsetting because it's just until people until you get someone in charge who is going to actually say, "I care about this country more than I care about myself," you're not going to see change. No, and I think that's that's one of the things that I try and carefully navigate when I discuss the absence of leadership here and the UK, and I'm sure, I don't know Australia that well, but um, is if you have a turd machine, it's going to keep pushing out turds. So you have to change the machine. <laughs> I was like, did you just say turd? <laughs> <laughs> I did. You know, so it's not about, oh, you're a Democrat or you're a Republican. No, <sighs> it's, it's you keep having the same people. They wear different color ties and one's on Fox a lot more and one's on CNN a lot more, but it's the same exact person. It's, you know, and, and so... They have so much more in common with each other than yeah. with the average person. And I tell people, I'm like, perfect example, look at obesity. We have 70% of the U.S. population overweight or obese. And that's through Democratic and Republican governments for decades. It's got worse and worse and worse. We've got a prison population. It's got worse and worse and worse. So it's not the party, it's the system. Yeah. And and I think that we need to, I mean, if there's no better time than the last 12 months to realize we need to control all delete and just start again and look at, you know, how, how people are allowed to make it on these ballots. And, and, you know, I mean, we all know great leaders and we know none of them would have a chance. I know. You know, so one of the, I've talked about this a lot. I'm still waiting for a date, but Tulsi Gabbard's supposed to be coming on the podcast soon. Excellent. She is the first person I've seen. Yes. That isn't. And she basically is not part of either party anymore right. because for that very reason. So I hope as a nation, we all band together and we put her in that seat the next you know, next time because she's the first person the whole time I've been in the US where, and I'm not big on politics at all, but I've mentioned a name and whether I'm talking to someone I know leans left or leans right, they all say, oh, we like her. Yeah. Oh, imagine that. Someone that unifies rather than yeah. divides. Yeah. Oh, that's great that you're going to have her on. She's very impressive. And I agree with you. I think she is a unifier. And, and you know, I just think it's about, you know, really 
you know, deciding that this stuff, yeah, we got to get stuff done. You know, there have to be decisions. There have to be elections. But what what is our what is our common goal? You know, what is our shared humanity, and what you know what can we serve that's greater than ourselves, right? And and I think that just needs to come back into the conversation more because it just feels like we've been on this trajectory, you know, of a me generation, an I generation. You know, everything's in you know single serving. <laughs> you know, like is that really is that the goal? You know. Uh, and and so I unfortunately though I don't see it getting I don't know how to break like you said how to how to control alt delete mm-hmm. I don't know how that happens yeah. and and you know so what can I do I just I just try to focus on close to home right Best that's I what can. they say isn't it that fix yeah. your home first fix your home first stay local I mean Goruk is very much about kind of empowering you know local communities to to connect with each other and you know whatever way that looks i mean usually with us it's with weight on your back but it's it's about serving a greater cause and i i think you know if we just got more of that going on that would it would be very helpful yeah absolutely well one more kind of area and then we'll actually go kind of how you got to the cia it's a pretty mm-hmm. cool story too um as I touched on, you know, one of the other nuclei of a huge issue is the prohibition of drugs. And what's been fascinating now is getting, especially in, in ironically, in um, special operations, where not only do I, you know, see as a firefighter paramedic the horrific effects of that, whether it's ODs, whether it's, you know, gang murders, whether it's domestic abuse, right. I mean, all these things that are tied in, prostitution. Um but also that it's funding terrorism right. as well. So, you know, you are obviously more in, in the African nation arena. Right. Just in your career, what was your witness of, I mean, without loading the question, the ripple effects of, of drug prohibition globally? I mean, it's all interconnected, like you said. You, you have, where you have drug trafficking, you have human trafficking, you have terrorist trafficking, they all use the same route, routes. They all, you know, it's it's all just happening, and and you know, once you, you once you you know are involved in one area, you're gonna quickly get you know find that wow, okay, well, this is connected to a drug ring, and this is you know where the the human you know the, the human traffickers are going, and it's it's all this you know terrible, ugly underbelly of of society, and like like you said, until there's not a, not a incentive. To do those things, right? I mean, w- it feels almost impossible sometimes, as on the other side of it, to be a reactionary force, you know, to try to figure out, like, you know, where where is the terrorism going to strike? You know, where is the terrorist going to strike next? You know, where, you know, where are people going to get kidnapped, and you know, where are these drug deals going to go? And, and and you know, yes, I think it's 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 all. I mean, we have it here at home. I mean, I've talked to a lot of my colleagues who've since, um, you know, left to come work on the home front. And there's like the the fight is at home with the opioid crisis. You know, it's just we're just now we're just now getting some transparency on that. There's just now some reconciliation, you know, some reconciliation on it in terms of, you know, lawsuits and things like that. But that's not changing at the local no, level. That's still mm-hmm. still reactionary, not proactive. Right. I mean. I mean, I know someone who actually um, Richard's wife works um, in this area, um, but it's 
it feels like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm pretty removed from that today. Um, but it's, I do think it's a, it's a huge root cause of a lot of, um, a lot of problems and a lot of people's unhappiness. I mean, it's, it's just, you're, you know, you start doing meth, your life is over. <laughs> I mean, it's just done. I mean, that shouldn't be like that, you know, shouldn't be one, you know, we're supposed to be able to make mistakes and, and still hopefully live to, to learn from them and tell about them. And it's just, I think there's a book, isn't there a popular book here? that's about forgiveness and turning other cheek and that kind of thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Are you sensing something with me? <laughs> yes. Yes. But I, but I mean, talking about all those things, it's like, you know, Yes, that that's that that book is about going towards those places, you know, and and meeting those people where they are. Yeah, right? well, I think that's the thing. In you know, in so many of the religious doctrines, there's examples of prophets being kind and going amongst lepers and you know prostitutes and all these different you know what we would think as people that were struggling and being amongst them and lifting right. them up. And yet, you look at the way we do things and we lock people in cages and you know oh, we. No. we you know, we arrest addicts. I mean, I, I talk about this all the time. You know, we're roughly the same age. Cops, early episodes of cops, those big car chases and then the foot pursuit and then the canine gets hold of them and they've got a crack rock in their pocket. That's not a dealer. That's not a smuggler. That's an addict. Right. Someone with a mental health problem that needs to go see a psychologist and an addiction program mm -hmm. and be lifted back up so they can be a functioning member of society. Yeah. Locking them in a prison is just going to compound their, their problems and right. either make them turn finally to actual crime or you know take their own life or die of an overdose yeah yeah i i agree it's you know the law <laughs> is is needed but it's but it's not the whole picture right and um you know i think just having a lot more compassion and 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 being able to have people who are trained you know to be able to i mean i honestly i think right now we are asking a lot of our leo and our fire emts we're asking them to be a mental health you know expert mm -hmm. social worker educator you know law enforcer you know doctor you know or you know a medical expert and we're asking them to do all these things and they're just humans too yeah you know at the end of the day and, and then when they make a mistake which you know oh. this most recent one was absolutely a mistake and, and yeah. not just that one individual that all the people that were on scene wearing <laughs> uniform if they were witnessing that and allow it to happen or are part of that. But Which one are you talking about? The, the um, George Floyd. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was, a, to me, a very blatant, you know, not, oh. not black and white because there are all these layers of how it led to that point, but, you know, lack of training, oh. training standards, you know, how many shifts of that individual worked up to that point, you right. know, how many BS cases had been known to right before that, had he been spat in the face by the last, you know, I mean, there's all these things. doesn't mean that that particular right. thing was wrong, but now you have one dead man and one incarcerated man. So two of those toddlers that we talked about earlier, both their lives yeah. are destroyed now. Right. And I think that's it. We've created this environment for people to fail. Right. You've got people murdering each other on the streets. You've got cops being executed that are so scared now they're going to draw their weapon on everything. Right. All because in the 1930s, some racist shitbag decides that he wants to justify his position and, and you know, use yeah. this prohibition of drugs to, to do that. Right. And now here we are in two, 2021, <laughs> And people are, you know, paying the price in blood over and over again, yeah. not just in the U.S., in Mexico, in Colombia and all these places because supply and demand. Yeah. As long as there's demand, people are going to kill for the money that comes through illicit drugs. Yeah. No, I agree. I remember 
talking about this when I was growing up, you know, have someone debating like we should just legalize, you know, things so they're great, you know, take the demand out of it. But I, yeah, it's just, there's just been no change, you know, to that. Well, and that's just it. I mean, it's been, we tried. Yeah. You know, what point do you draw a line in the sand? But I sat down with a guy called Zhao Gulao, who's the, the gentleman in Portugal that spearheaded their decriminalization. Mm. And I sat down with him in Lisbon. And I saw their, their center and talked through, you know, what happens if you get detained and you have an interview process and mm-hmm. you're basically educated on all these channels that will help you with your addiction and get you a job and you're not given a, you know, a criminal record so mm. you can still work. And they, they reversed their issue in less than 10 years. So that's what's crazy. Yeah. We know ours doesn't work. We've seen countries where it's worked incredibly well getting rid of that. And we still, there's so much money in it that we, the people, have to get angry enough to force right. that change. Because right now people are making you, hand over fist on our Do you think dying. the legalization of marijuana is going to help? I think that's piecemeal. I think you've got to do it all. Because mm-hmm. I don't think yeah, marijuana isn't the problem. You know, it's, it's, no, I just meant like as a starting point. Um, no, I think it's like it's like the Obamacare. You know, if mm. we want, if we're going to have health care in this country, then we should have health care in this country where our eight-year-olds aren't working at Walmart because they can't afford their prescriptions. Right. You know what I mean? So to me, because I had um, Ed Calderon on, and he it was a Mexican policeman before mm-hmm. he came over here. And he said, well, he just saw the marijuana fields replaced with, I think it was opium, if I'm not mistaken. So mm. the same exact thing, different product. So you have right. to cut the head off the snake completely. Yeah. Um, but then it makes it safer for the law enforcement, makes it safer for the community. It frees up the prison systems. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not waiting for six months in jail to get a court case to find out you're innocent. You know right, what I mean? Right, I mean, right. all these things. So to me, as a complete layman, it makes so much sense. And maybe that's a that's what we need is people on the outside that aren't so embedded. And my you know, brothers and sisters in blue, mm-hmm. they've been drilled in their head about drugs so they're they're a very hard sell yeah but when you kind of can paint the picture like it'll be safe for you on the streets maybe you can actually ride two to a car again so you're not having to draw your weapon because the other guy is 250 pounds that you're trying to detain yeah you know there's so many upsides for for safety and law enforcement and citizens right right it was interesting when jason and i went to columbia a couple years ago it you know we were you know you know, this was a, we were in FARC, you know, f- former FARC territory, and they've come a long way since, you know, uh, that time, I think. I mean, there's still, you know, obviously issues, but there were, instead of, you know, sort of the, the drug fields, you know, they're planting coffee now. <laughs> I mean, well, that's what people say, like, oh, but it's just, you know, this is funding the farmers. It's like, yeah, so there's demand for something positive. The money, right. the money's always going to be spent. Right. So let's spend it on the right thing. Coffee's addictive, but yeah, I got one right here. <laughs> but we're but we're okay with it, right? And, yeah. and and you know, it was it was interesting because you know, at the end of the day, people, most people, just want to be able to feed their family and you know work, you know, have have a good job and and you know uh, live their life. It's it, it, like like you said. It's the, the trying to change the status quo of the people in power to to let go and realize that by by letting this go is not going to mean that their life is going to you know change so drastically. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, you mentioned Jason. So what I would love to do is kind of parallel your relationship because you've got a very interesting <laughs> you know yeah. early time and then and then some distance mm-hmm. and then back together. Um, alongside with you know your own entry into the cia Mm -hmm. and when where that took you yes so uh 
trying to come up with stuff that's new. <laughs> um, Jason and I go way back, you know, we've known each other since we were 15 and we're always, we were always good friends. Um, and, you know, he, he's the reason I, I did join the agency. He was the catalyst for that. I would never have even considered it. <laughs> and I mean, I was actually like, I want to work in nonprofits or I want to, you know, go work for MSF or, or do, I mean, there, you know, so, you know, after going to Ecuador, my eyes were open to a lot of those opportunities. And, and then at the same time, I was like, well, maybe I'll just teach too, you know, just trying to figure things out. Um, this is my, you know, my early 20s or mid 20s. And he, he really encouraged me to, to apply. And I was skeptical the whole way, but went through the process and found out that, you know, it was, it was interesting enough to give it a try. And that's what I told myself, I'll give it five years, you know, and, and we'll go from there. Um, you know, he, he and I got married quickly. He was deploying, you know, typical military story and we were pretty young. And then, um, we, 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 we had this sort of, you know, stupid idea that we would just see each other on the end, you know, at the end of these journeys, you know, and we'd get together, you know, but what you don't realize there's a lot of work that has to go into relationships. But, you know, we graduated from our respective training programs a week apart. And, um, you know, it was a weird time. It was like really intense, you know, I was like, getting weapons trained and (laughs) he's going off to war and I'm, I'm volunteering to go to Afghanistan, but I I got chosen to go to uh, Africa instead, which I was, I was pretty psyched about. Um, So yeah, we did that long distance life for a while. And there's kind of a funny story where, you know, he knew a bunch of my colleagues. Uh, I knew less of, of, I didn't really get a lot of interaction with his colleagues until later. Um, but he, he would like, we could talk on, you know, the high side and he, when he was in Basra and I was in Africa and he would just be like, tell me the play by play. <laughs> and I would, you know, and I wasn't, I, I wasn't a colleague to him. Like we were married now and I was really worried and upset. And here I am like by myself in the middle of like West Africa. And, you know, I finally, I called one of my, my buddies who was, uh, I think he was in Iraq too. He was not in the same city as, as Jason, but I called him and I would cried and I said, I don't want to hear all this information. I don't want to hear how many times mortars have almost killed him. You know, I don't want to, I don't, I, I don't want to know. Like I, I know too much, you know, I can read everything and what's going on. And so he, he like gave Jason a call and said, Hey man, like don't tell your wife everything. <laughs> you got to have a little distance. So that was good, but you know, we were we were pretty foolish in a lot of ways. You know, looking back on it, we probably should have invested in our relationship a little bit more. Like something as stupid as like having a camera on our computers. Like you know, Jason was like, "Oh, we don't need that. They're they're too expensive," or you know, something like that. You know, uh, and you know, just we didn't get to see each other very much. So you can only do that for so long. Mm-hmm. Like it's especially in the environments you're in. I mean, Jason had a different experience. He was on a team. I was like a loner, lone wolf out there. I was in a very small station and um, often operating alone. You know, that meant 
ride around with my dog Java in in my vehicle. I'm meeting people in hotel rooms at night and like like creepy creepy people, <laughs> you know, like not <laughs> this isn't this isn't fun, you know. This is like old dirty old men. And it just like just started to wear on me, you know. I mean, I brought my dog to all the meetings as a safety. He was like my bodyguard, essentially, because everyone was freaked out by him, even though he was kind of a sweetheart. But he looked scary to them. Um, but, you know, I really, there, you know, the, the life I led there was very full. I got to do a lot. I loved the platform of the embassy. I mean, I went to an orphanage every weekend almost to volunteer time there. Um, it was you know, really heart wrenching, um, tiny little babies that are just like left, you know, left to die on the side of the road. And then kids who are, you know, their families either can't take care of them or they don't want to take care of them because there's, you know, something wrong with them. So I got to still kind of stay connected that way. And then on the other side, I, I, I did a lot of, you know, political sort of work and the diplomatic circuit. And then I had, you know, kind of created my own fun there too, in terms of um, putting on some events with some of my state colleagues, just to keep morale up and, you know, find ways to meet new people. So it, it was really fun in retrospect, but it was hard, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, Must have been terrifying too, because I mean, you're, you know, you're not, the biggest woman in the world <laughs> and to be alone in a, in a different you know to, to be that vulnerable male or female to be a, a single person i had to you know i think what really was took its toll was that i had to really try to be not show any vulnerability right so i had to had to be this version of myself that was still me but it was just like <laughs> i mean i just had to like always be tough never let down my guard to anyone. I didn't have anyone I could confide to. I did. Was that hard to turn off when you came back stateside? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's largely what the distance and, and that sort of like compartmentalizing largely like what uh, caused our relationship to, to crash and burn. You know, I just started to feel like I didn't have anyone I could trust. <laughs> you know? Because, <laughs> because you didn't. In I that didn't. Environment. I didn't. I mean, I'm, you know, doing some like, you know, uh, you know, restrictive, you know, things that I'm not allowed to share with anyone. And I'm also not, you know, everything's scrutinized from headquarters in terms of like, you know, I, I used to carry around like, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars, you know, to do things and by myself and, I remember I had a good, I had a, finally had a good boss to come in. He taught me a ton. He pulled me under his wing and was like, you can't do these things by yourself anymore. Like, this is not how it's done. I don't know who told you that was right, but like from a safety perspective of you, like wrong from a CYA perspective, if anything goes wrong and this money gets stolen, your ass is on the line, you know? I mean, he taught me a lot of things because I just, you know, you're kind of flapping in the wind a little bit, you know, you're, I, I always used to laugh, like the cavalry's not coming. <laughs> I've got to come up with my own way out of this situation if, if the shit hits the fan. And that, you know, I had plenty of people come through because I was often like acting chief and, and, you know, people coming from war zones and they were like, I'm more freaked out here than I was in the war zone. And I'd be like, why? And they're like, 
there's just this random, you know, possibility of things, weird things happening. Because you got, I mean, I had total freedom of movement. So I'd go up in rebel territory and meet with rebels and, you know, eat some agouti and the, the bush rat. Um, I did not eat any bats. <laughs> this is pre-Ebola. <laughs> I but I say. knew <laughs> that bats were not not to be eaten. Um, you know, go to the coast. I went, I went out to the, um, not the coast, the border with Liberia. Car broke down. Stranded in the middle of nowhere. You just called AAA? <laughs> no AAA. Liberian AAA. I did have to get the embassy to come, you know, get me at some point. But I was just, you know, hanging out in this village for a little bit, you know, with my dog. And I picked up this Peace Corps um, girlfriend. Um, we, like, palled around. Uh, yeah, so it was, it was a weird time, but exciting. It's just, I don't know. You have to be a really kind of, weirdly wired person to want to to stay in that environment all the time and frankly to be quite honest i don't see a lot of people in that environment having you know sustained relationships i don't see them having good relationships with their children or maybe no children at all and ultimately i knew i wanted to be married with kids and to be there for them and kind of have be able to recreate some sort of semblance of what i had growing up and i i saw the writing on the wall there weren't many females in high positions that I thought were very happy. And that's not to say they weren't successful. And that's not to say that we don't need women in those positions, because we do, and I'm, I respect them. But successful and happy are two different things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, mean, I mean, who am I to say? Like, maybe they were happy. <laughs> but I wouldn't have been happy. You know, my, I was projecting. So I eventually got out. Um, even though I do, I mean, I still miss the work element of it. And I, I miss, I miss being in Africa because there were so many things you can do there. There's so many ways to, to spend try to help, money. right? what you say? <laughs> spend all that money that you have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, there wasn't a lot to spend. Well, it is expensive to travel in there, you know, but no, I meant like, um, humanitarian work, mm-hmm. right? Just. There's just a lot of activity going on. Now, just to interject again for a second, mm-hmm. you had all these warlords. And one thing I always find <laughs> fascinating is, you know, I ask people um, the horrors that they saw. And maybe, yeah. maybe I'll ask you that next. But the other, the flip side of the coin is also the moments of humanity, the moments of right. compassion amongst some of these horrendous yeah. things. So are there any moments of that that, that pop, spring to mind? Yes. So, um, I mean, I, I've met with various warlords <laughs> and they're people too and <laughs> they still put their pants on the same way they have kids um so one guy i knew in in particular was they called himself mr big <laughs> 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 very um very handsome like just like powerful leader of the force nouvelle um which were the rebels in the northern part of cote d'ivoire and you know got to go to like his headquarters up in Buake and, you know, have dinner with him, meet his family, meet his little son, you know, and it's what we were talking about. This person was fighting for a cause that they truly believed in. This was for, he was representing the fact that his people, you know, of his, of his tribe, of his area of the country were being marginalized and, sometimes killed, you know, and, and, and definitely not, you know, they didn't trust, you know, the people in, in power in the capital or in, in the economic capital of Abidjan. So 
not to not to get too like it's easy to get like sort of a Stockholm syndrome or I wasn't I wasn't kidnapped but you know just to be compassionate once you get to know people but you know I spent time on the other side too and I saw that it just wasn't the same you know I think they their cause wasn't as didn't seem as worthy to me in some ways. Like they, they had a lot of things going for them and they wanted to keep wanted it that more. way and wanted more. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I see this even here. Yeah. Like what's the holy grail in business? The monopoly. Why is that a thing that you want all of the money? Why do you want to control all of the farms, all of the water? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, you think about it tribally. Yeah. Like there's no peaceful tribes, whether it's the Iroquois, whether whoever it is, that Steve from the tribe wants to have everyone else's food. They would beat Steve to death. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it okay. It, yeah. It's revered in America to to pursue, you know, you have a you have a electronic shop and you build yours right next door. So hopefully you destroy that other yeah. one and you can have all and it's like, can't you both sell radios? Can't you have lots of small farms rather than a mega farm that sprays everyone's food with all these chemicals because yeah. it's so unhealthy to have a mega right. farm? But so that's the thing, you know whether it's here again it's it's the same thing some people want to have all the shit <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. what it boils down it to it does it does i do i agree with you and i i've seen it you know on and it's complicated too i mean there's you know oh well, then you like get into feuds and and you know who wronged who you know over the years but you know and and in Chad, um, it was also a similar situation. I, I've talked about this in, in another podcast, but it's um, so I met with this Sudanese rebel leader and his, you know, his entourage. His name was um, Khalil Ibrahim, and he was part of the GEM, the Justice and Equality Movement. So you know, he, they, the, these were these were. Basically, these people were getting persecuted, you know, in their hometown by the Sudanese government. I mean, it's just, it just was happening. They wanted, they, it was a, you know, a, a genocide kind of situation. And, you know, this is, this is where you start to like see like, wow, I, I, I can't, I, you're telling me all these things that have happened to you. And, you know, he, he would sit there and say, you tell your president that this is why we've left the agreement and these are the, our demands and things like that. So, you know, this I had was to the uh, Darfur mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they were, you know, Chad, of course, you know, was, uh, you know, um, harboring the Sudanese rebels. So they would, you know, go and fight and then cross the border. Like you know? Pakistan is with, um, yeah. Afghanistan. Yeah. So they were hanging out on the, you know, on the other side of the border and in Chad, you know, kind of biding their time. And, you know, it's a very confusing uh, process because, you know, you've got all these refugee camps because of the situation in Chad on the border there. And, you know, you go in there and it's just, it's really just basic, 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 you know, and, and yet you've got these other problems, right? You've got, you know, radicalization, you know, within, you know, because people are just sitting around there waiting, bored, and you've got someone that's going to talk to them about what they're going to do next. And then you've got, you know, sort of the humanitarian, you know, the handouts of, you know, food. And then next thing you see as you go to the, you know, where the black market is, you see it being sell, sold, those same like food program packages are being sold on the black market. So it's like, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Like, it, it's not clear. Yeah. It, it's everyone's just trying to do their best to survive to a certain level. 
So, you know, that experience, I didn't get to like see them in a more humanizing way like I did with Mr. Big and his family. But I did get to hear like, I mean, I know, I mean, from what I read and what they told me, like their struggle is they were fighting for their lives, you know. Now, so. com well, conversely then, so another perspective, and I ask Jason, as I ask everyone that's been in, you know, a combat zone usually, but mm -hmm. what, because with with the most recent one, it's kind of an interesting perspective. I mean, there's genocide, you know, and then the horrible things that happen, but we, you know, we tend to pick where we're going to help, yes. especially, you know, and it's hard to argue that if there's oil and things in there, that wasn't, you know, a reason as well, mm. but... Um, I had a, a gentleman, um, Ishmael Bey, who was a, a boy soldier from Sierra Leone. His mm. parents were killed. You know, wow. he was threatened to be murdered or join. You know, they're all doped up. Yeah, it was it was amazing. But um, so but when you hear you know his story and how basically one of his friends said he didn't want to join and they just executed him right there. I mean, you, you it's easy to judge a boy soldier. Well, have you seen how that kid got to that point? So were there any? Yeah, what what was some of the things or, or or an incident in itself that sticks out where you know you saw the the horror which then creates this unwinnable to and fro mm -hmm. well you know in in chat i you know there were like boy soldiers there involved in the compound that i that i went to and um but i didn't trying to think yeah I don't I don't know I didn't I mean I don't think I saw something quite you know I wouldn't be able to talk to like I would understand the stories that that this boy soldier was telling you because I I saw the effects of it in the communities I mean I, I saw it from a different side right because I'm not Yes, I got to meet with these warlords, but you have to understand, I'm meeting with them from an intelligence perspective, right? Yeah, so you're not on the front lines I'm not in, the, in front the middle lines of the jungle. No, somewhere. I'm trying to, I'm trying to gather information, right? And then you know, but there's you know, I did do a fair amount of travel and meeting with people, and I'd often see what happened to these villages when all these men and boys were taken away, right? I mean. The, the women and the, the the children are left there and there's a void and they're you know they're suffering too right they're they're suffering because they they've you know lost these you know members of their community of their tribe that they that they counted on and and know and if they ever get reintegrated back they're not the same right you know it's just and there's no there's no support system, you know no VA no I mean they're they, these these are folks that we would go and you know, it would be like a gift from the State Department to come up with a machine that would help, you know, the women um, reduce their time. Like they would spend hours, like eight hours, you know, milling the the cassava, you know, <laughs> root mm -hmm. that just grows everywhere. You know, I mean, luckily they live, you know, they're for, for better or for worse, they, they're, Cote d'Ivoire is this very fertile nation where it, all it does you just drop a seed and something grows you know you don't not like florida then. <laughs> <laughs> right right florida's like that too but no but there's this like you don't really have to work that hard to find your food and water it's there mm -hmm. but you know the it's not very efficient you know and and uh, you know to come be able to 
you know, give these tools so they can cut down on their time so they'll be able to maybe open a business to be able to better, you know, pull themselves out of poverty. But, you know, and, and, and the interesting thing about that is you always give those to the women in the community because you know that they're going to stay, you know. Um, and they're going to stay and they're going to be in, invested in the, the, the well-being of the children and of the elderly there and be the caretakers. Uh, you know, we're talking about caretakers who still hunt and gather and cook and, you know, do all those things, protect. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something actually I just, just from telling you this, I just re- was reminded by in Chad, there's a lot of um, cot, you know, it's like that, uh, it's a drug that, men often chew okay in that area of the 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 world and it's the debil- i mean it's, it's debilitating as as we talk about the drug problem here you have men just you know they're sitting around underneath the the mango tree you know chewing cod all day not not being productive members of society go home beat you know their wives and now would these be men that had seen combat earlier or was it more of a systemic thing I don't know if they had, I mean, possibly, uh, I think, um, depends on who you're talking about. I think it's more systemic, more of a, there's nothing to do. There are no jobs. I mean, you have a bored population of, of, uh, males out there. (laughs) That's bad. That's a bad recipe, right? We look at the opiate crisis. So many of the, 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 the hubs (laughs) are areas where industry moved out, you know, so you add mental health and boredom together. You've got a pretty aggressive cocktail. Yeah. So you drug addiction and then we're back to terrorism and, you know, other means to, to, to have a reason to get up in the morning. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, thank you for sharing your perspective. It's so interesting getting it from, from all these different lenses. I mean, you know, whether it's Africa, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's, you know, Southeast Asia. Um, So you and Jason are in these separate kind of, you know, ecosystems. You're both you know, encapsulate in your worlds, as it were. Um, yeah. So tell me about <laughs> the the demise of that, you know, your yeah. kind of next relationship. But then I think what's amazing is then how you guys found <laughs> your way together. back together. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are. <laughs> I'm in West Africa. And, you know, aside from, you know, all these things that are happening, like I'm having a successful career, right? I'm, I'm doing the things I'm supposed to do. And, and I'm, that's that's that can be enjoyable right especially if you've got nothing else going on. you kind of just start to be like well i'm just going to get really good at doing my job so you know the plan always from the beginning was that we would go be in these separate you know organizations and then he would come over and then you know we'd go back to the states probably start a family he'd go through the training and then we both deploy out and you know, my original idea when I first went in was like to try to set us up for success, right? To, I was thinking ahead, thinking like, well, he's going to have that position like as a case officer and I'm going to need to have a position that's complimentary so we can be a tandem couple and we can be together. And and so I pos- I kept, you know, positioning myself early on to be like, I'm going to be in this position, which is more of reports based, less on the front lines. But I just kept getting pushed. Like they kept saying, you know, I don't know. They just like whatever by personality, they make you take all these personality tests or whatever. They kept saying like, no, 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 (laughs) you're going to do this. And I, and eventually I realized they were right because I really liked that 
part of it. And um, even though I, I know I do like writing, but reports writing can sometimes it's not, not be writing. Like, <laughs> not exactly, you know, it's scintillating. It's not creative. But I tried, I tried. <laughs> I, do like, I had a couple of people like, wow, your reports are really interesting. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to keep it, keep it fresh. But um, the, yeah, so we, so, so basically you see we're in this power struggle now. We're not really getting along. We're not super close with each other right at this point. And, you know, he comes over to Cote d'Ivoire. It's a disaster. Like, crash and burn. And, you know, because it, it became like, it became this thing where it's like, well, he doesn't want to be a house husband. I don't really want him to be a house husband either. But something's got to give at some point from one of us. And I'm like, well, I'm on this career path and I'm not going to stop, you know, and, and, you know, factor in, you know, that I had probably already wanted to have a family by then. And, you know, and, you know, needs, un- needs unmet that, and he's, you know, f- going through this tough transition of leaving his team and feeling like, you know, I'm a special forces guy. And now he's can't even, you know, got offered a janitor position at the embassy. I mean, it just was pretty demoralizing. So that, you know, the go ruck sort of origin story was born out of the misery because <laughs> we were trying to figure it out. Like, well, what can you do while I'm in doing, you know, doing my cool job, right? And I know it was hard for him. And it was, frankly, it was hard on both of us. We went through some bunch of counseling and just, just, you know, it's one of those things I don't know, you know, if anyone's ever gone through like, a broken you know a relationship that's you know melting down it's it's like you're always trying at different times (laughs) and you just need to to have a sustained time when you're both trying at the same time and if you don't have that it's not going to probably work Mm -hmm. or if one person's trying the other one isn't right from experience that doesn't work either (laughs) right right yeah exactly so you got to both be trying yep and that's harder than it (laughs) <laughs> than it sounds i mm. think well especially if you know you're dealing with all these other oh. layers of of trauma or you know <laughs> survive you know survival instincts whatever it is or, that are going on or i'm not allowed to talk to you about that sorry you yeah. know <laughs> and vice versa i mean both yeah. of you had your classified information yeah. so what do you share right you know i mean yeah it just was weird and um so we, he ended up going back to the States before I did. I finished out my tour. Um, I actually had extended my tour. And I was just like, where am I going next? <laughs> you know, where can, I, where can I run away from this? I was like, almost went to Mongolia. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I was, my boss was like, real case officers go to Ulaanbaatar, Emily. I was like, well, I'm a real case officer. I'm going to go. So, yeah, I mean, I applied to that and then I was like gonna go to um uh Mexico City so that was my next stop so I already you know before I left my my current post I was already slated for another one and went back to DC Jason was there he was um starting Georgetown Business School because he had gotten a full ride full scholarship which was great um as I know he had always wanted to go there it's, it was like a joke between us that I got in in high school and he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> he went to a great school, but it was just it was just fun, it's kind of a funny thing. And um, 
yeah, so that just kind of was more of the same. We tried to make it work, but just it didn't. I was actually living in a hotel for about four months. <laughs> you know, because I was, you know, the government will put you up in a hotel. So I was like, refused to live with him, you know, staking out my own territory. We'd swap the dog back and forth. And I'm living in this hotel in DuPont for months on end, which it's a terrible way to live. I mean, it's a nice hotel, but it's like, what am I doing? It's not a home. So just kind of biding my time till, you know, going to DFA. And um, then and then things change, like as they do in the government. I got slated to go to Brazil instead. And um, so that I went through, I ended up getting more time because I needed to go through language school because I didn't speak Portuguese. So I was in Portuguese language school for several months. And, you know, at this point, Jason and I have decided like, you know, well, we, we were, we were not going to, we were not going to make it. We had stopped the counseling and everything like that. So, uh, I ended up going to Brazil and then, um, you know, well, you know, divorce is like a funny thing. And we actually, we, we technically got annulled because <laughs> we didn't have any shared property besides the dog. And I ended up giving him my dog, which was difficult. Oh, sure. <laughs> but, uh, I think it's, I th- actually think doing that was the, is probably the only reason we are back together today. <laughs> I know. I think he would have hated me otherwise. So anyway, we we officially get annulled, and then you know, I've I've um, I've met this Brazilian special forces officer because you know I have a type. <laughs> 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 um, so uh, so I met him and. Um, you know, I, I'm dating him and things, you know, older things move fast. And I didn't really want to get married, remarried. I was like, I've done that. Check that box. Don't really want to do it again. Can we just hang out? <laughs> and he was, you know, it was, it was, would have been his first. He's the oldest of three boys that are in the military. And it's just really important for him to have this moment. So kind of got my arm twisted into that and um, got married. And then, you know, late, you know, nine months later, I have a daughter born in Brazil and then that that was a longer story but I had like a series of unfortunate events happen you know very soon like during the birth you know shortly thereafter a policeman puts a gun to my head and then um you know with my daughter in the car with me and then um my daughter broke her leg with a babysitter and I had a hard time getting care for her and I was really on an island there because you know he's in the, being the military lived away from his family and then he was gone training all the time, you know, doing missions and whatnot. So here I am, <laughs> you know, work, you know, working as a teacher. I've left my, I've, I've since left the um, the agency. That transition was really hard. Going, I was gonna you say, know, separating from Jason and going through that at the same time. We we're both, I mean, rock bottom. So all your tribes were basically. Oh gone. yeah, just mm. just rock bottom, just really hard, and. Um, you know, fortunately, I got some help. I went back to the States for a visit and for a prolonged visit. And um, I met up again with the same marriage counselor that Jason and I worked with, but I just went with her on my own. And, um, you know, she helped me kind of get back on track. <laughs> so that worked out. And then, um, but 
but things in Brazil were still difficult and I ended up moving home to live with my mom <laughs> when my daughter was 14, about 14 months old. And that was hard because, you know, my relationship with her father was still good. Like he's a great guy, um, a wonderful person. And it was hard to leave, but I was just struggling to be there on my own. You know, I felt like I didn't feel safe there. I didn't feel like I had good access to healthcare. I didn't feel like my daughter had good educational opportunities. I didn't feel like I had good job opportunities. You know, it just was a lot going on. And the policeman with the gun, was that a corrupt cop trying to... You know, I don't even know to this day. It was such a bizarre incident. I'll, I'll, I'll describe it. So I, at this point, I'm, I had been offered a job at the American School in Rio, which is a great opportunity, you know, because it allows you to not only have a, a good career and get into that system, but also, you know, you can send your kids to one of the best schools in the, the country for, for free or reduced rates. And I thought, strategically, this is what I need to do for my daughter because I'm not making the big bucks anymore, right? <laughs> With my hazard pay out in Cote d'Ivoire. Um, so um, I, I was there for some meetings and I got into the car with this uh, Brazilian girlfriend of mine was driving her car and I was in the back because my daughter's five months old. So basically I'd arrange this whole thing where because I'm on my own, you know, husband at the time is off training. So I'm like, get my friend to drive me to those meetings with, and she's going to watch my baby while I'm going in, you know. Um, this is things moms have to do, right? And and um, I get back in the car because we're getting ready to leave. And we're driving down the road and this cop stops us and just rolls down the window and puts a gun to my head. And I'm right next to my five-month-old, oh my you know. Now, we were in this really nice area of Rio, which is also right next to um, a favela. So the the slum and one of the, it's called Hosina, and it's one of, it's notoriously been, you know, had a lot of crime and drug problems and all sorts of issues. I mean, these are all the favelas that were like suppressed in the lead up to the Olympics. But if you, you know, look at anything now, there's, they're back to full force problems again. And so I don't know, is the, is the bottom line. I did not so you never got an explanation or anything? Was given zero explanation. God, must have been terrifying. What my friend, what we think might have happened is that he may have thought I was kidnapping because kidnapping is so common there because I was in the back seat. You know, he didn't, you know, I was with my daughter. I was trying to, my daughter hated being in the car seat. She just always scream and cry. So I was back there trying to like soothe her until we, you know, got home and, um, yeah, I, I, don't, I think, I, I don't know, but it was weird. It was like, I mean, James, I've had many guns pointed to my head before <laughs> in Africa, but I never had one pointed in my head with a five-month-old next to me. And that just, it changed everything for me. And people tell you this, you know, having kids changes you. I didn't realize, you know, I thought, oh, that meant like, oh, you're not going to get the sleep <laughs> or you're going to have to be less selfish or, you know, I, those were things I was like mentally prepared for. I was not prepared for that moment. I wasn't, you know, I did not think that that was a possibility. Um, that I, and, and, and how I would feel about it. So that was very traumatic for me. And I didn't, I had a hard time feeling safe afterwards. I mean, just where I lived, I mean, nice areas in, in, in another city, but carjackings all the time. And I was constantly, you know, I was constantly being like, what am I going to do? If someone carjacks my baby, like my, my car with my baby in the car seat in the back, like I didn't even want to go anywhere, you know, 
I, you know, so I just felt, just felt like it wasn't for me anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, understandably, as this, some of the guys that uh, I've had on the show, they share a lot of the kind of lessons learned, shooting, stabbings, all those kind of videos, and so many of them are from Brazil. So right. many other you know, two right. guys on the motorbike, one jumps off with the gun, and yeah, and, and I've got a friend mm-hmm. that actually was fire and police in. I don't think it was Rio, but it was one of the other big cities. Sao Paulo or something. I think I think it was I think it was Sao Paulo. Mm-hmm. I might I might be wrong, but um, and then you hear obviously about you know some of the dark dark stories of them cleansing street kids and all these things. And I know that's not most Brazilians, but I mean that kind of thing that you could literally basically have genocide of the homeless. Yeah, you know homeless children is know. you know horrendous. Yes, so it it happens, you know, and. So, I mean, I had an interesting perspective because, you know, being connected to the Brazilian military, you know, and the special forces, you getting to see all the problems that they're dealing with. And then on top of that, you know, the military bases where you're supposed to live are like nestled right in the middle of a bunch of like, you know, favelas, you know, and it's, it's just, it's just a weird, it's a, it was a weird situation because I felt very vulnerable, right? I didn't feel like, in Africa, you know, I was alone, like I said, on my own. And I didn't have, I mean, it, I, always, I was just making peace with it. Like, hey, if I get killed out here, cool. Like, I, I get a star on the wall, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? I just felt like different about it. I just wasn't scared to the same extent. I mean, every time I went over this bridge, this you know, soldier would put a gun to my head and I'd say, do you want me to call your boss? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I just be like posturing. Right. And, um, you know, or, or like be nice to him if that's what it took, you know, different tacks. But yeah, the, the, that was disorienting to have like a little, a little helpless, you know, person dependent on me. So I was less willing to take those risks. So ended up back in the States, lived with my mom for a long time. Um, and uh, eventually, so, so this, is what you, this is what you do when you have a friend, right? Jason and I have always been friends. So I call him when I come back and I said, hey, I need a soft landing. I'm going to be applying to other jobs. But in the meantime, you know, I just, can I help out with GORUCK? Because, you know, something that we started together um, and I stayed engaged on some level but hey, do you need any help? I'm I, I'm here. I'd like to help out. And he was like, of course, you know. So was thankful for that. Um, so I worked part time for GORUCK doing various things, and um, you know, eventually moved out of my, to my own place. My mom, and um, <laughs> you know, funny story. So I'm i'm kind of skipping a little bit here but i this is the story i wanted to talk about because uh it's fire related um so i'm gonna buy my first like piece of property right uh and at this point jason and i have gotten back together i'm skipping over all that (laughs) mess we've gotten back together it was an accident but a happy accident and um you know it, it i'll just say that when you know when you've got you know SF guy who's living with a bunch of SF guys with his dog as the center of his world. And then, you know, me living in my, you know, tiny little apartment (laughs) with my daughter as the center of my world. There wasn't a lot of time to like reconcile. Mm -hmm. So it ended up being like one night stand, (laughs) you know, we're back together because I'm pregnant basically. Um, So that was hard, but it was a forcing function. And um, 
Sometimes that's what you need. Yeah, the universe kind of pushed the <laughs> Sometimes push the that's what you need. It. So we, it, we had a lot of work to do to get our relationship in a good place because it was rough. But eventually, but basically, I ended up deciding at that point I'm going to buy my own place and he's going to come live with me. So I'm looking at this place. It's a condo on the third floor, um, really nice in Jack's Beach, and you know, 1,500 square feet, perfect, right? Um, definitely an upgrade from where I was, and. I'm going to show my mom it. So she comes over. The realtor gave me the code to get in. Well, it's a really, really windy day. Like, you know, almost hurricane force for some reason. And um, we go to, I I immediately want to show her the balcony because you can see the ocean. You know, it's ocean view. So I like, I'm like, quick, come in. So my mom is like, consummate locker. Like she locks everything, (laughs) you know? She does not leave things unlocked. And um, so she must have locked the door. And, and then there's only one way in, you know, because it's a balcony and then you're on the third floor. So this is the top floor on the corner. And so we walk out to the, the balcony. I'm like, isn't this beautiful? And she's like, yeah. And then the, the, the wind is so strong, like slams the door back into the house. We're completely locked out. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been like she was that must have been already locked. So I'm here. Mind you, I am I'm pregnant at this point, but I haven't told anybody. Because I'm like a little freaked out because no one knows that no one knows what's going on. You know, we have there's no good way to tell people these sorts of things. Like, you know, there's no handbook. So I'm we're on the third story and I'm like, you know, my my brain is always like, how do I solve this problem? I'm like, I'm just going to climb down, you know, these, <laughs> but it was not a really good there was not a really good way to get down safely. And here I am. I think if I wouldn't have been pregnant, I would have done it. But um you know, I had my lock picking kit in my bag inside. <laughs> so that did me no good. So we're stuck on this balcony. And I'm supposed to go pick up my daughter from school in like, you know, any moment now. So I'm like calling down to people like, hey, can you come unlock the door? And they're like, it's locked. We can't get in there. And so I'm like, just just call 911 or call the non-emergency number. They send four police cars, two huge fire trucks, and my mom and I have to walk down the ladder with a fireman to get down. It was embarrassing, but <laughs> I wish I'd taken a picture, but I didn't have my phone. But it was, they were just laughing at us so much. I mean, my mom, she didn't really want to go on that ladder. She was pretty scared to do it, but she did it. But that's how we got down. <laughs> that's why, uh, that's the only time I ever climbed a fire truck ladder. <laughs> but it was fun in retrospect. No one got hurt. And the guys thought it was really funny to be able to save save us i felt i'm like i god dang it i'm not usually the damsel in distress but here i am stranded on this balcony and ended up getting the part getting the condo and living there for a while so beautiful see that's a story every time you went out on the balcony that yeah, remind you of that i know every time i see it we, we bike <laughs> by it all the time i'm like yep yeah, there it is so yeah that was funny but yeah so we got back together and then um had one more kid and now we're good. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I think it's just, it's so cool to hear. And I think I first heard it. I think Jason was on Jocko's podcast. Wasn't yes. It? Yeah. So, yeah. So, but, you know, for people out there that maybe drifted apart from their, you know, previous girlfriend, wife, <laughs> husband, whatever it was, that, you know, occasionally maybe that is the right person. And you might have been with the wrong person the second. I, mine was, you know, the reverse. There was no wrong person. My yeah. first one had an expiration date and it was what it was. My second one was definitely my soulmate, Aww, you know. But, you know, I think it's an important story to hear that just because it finished doesn't mean 
it's over forever. If it's in the cards right. and that was your true, true love, then you know it's well, never too late. You know, you need a lot of work goes into relationships, and you know, we had to we had to like it was not pretty for a while. You know. So Just, what what worked? <laughs> what, what changed things? I mean, time under the same roof and something that you hadn't had since and i mean honestly school, really. like we're we're friends first like in growing growing to love someone is possible because to be honest you know a marriage is it's not you know you hear this when you're young and you don't believe it but it, there's a lot more that goes into a marriage than just being madly in love with someone you know i mean it's nice but it's not uh, it's just one small it's just one part of it so I think, you know, say, for example, this past year, you know, being so strange and such a crucible, and a lot of uh, relationships getting, you know, wrecked by, you know, but it's really about like what was wrong, you know, and what brings to the surface. So we grew, we grew a lot closer this past year. It was, you know, there were some hard moments because, you know, Jason thrives in chaos and I I don't mind it, but I don't love it like yeah. the way he does. So you know, there's a disparity in terms of our reaction to things. But but on the on, but for the most part, we're on the same page for a lot of things. I mean, we you know you just get used to someone. You know, you can finish their sentences and you enjoy them. You know, we work together, we live together. You know, spend a lot of time together, and um, you know, I, I do think that there's this you know. You love the one you're you're with, and and if if you like them as a person, you can you can learn to love them too, you know, and you can learn to love them again. Yeah. Right? Beautiful. Well, that's so good to hear. Well, speaking of of Go Ruck, then um, obviously we talked about it with Jason too, but so talk to me about. Um, you know, some of the exciting things that are coming up as we come out of yeah. this strange last twelve months. Oh, yeah. um, and then, uh, you know, any any new potential mm-hmm. projects that we can look forward to as well. Yes. So, you know, something that uh, is become kind of fell into our lap last year, um, and like later in the year, has been this um, the Chad workout and um, focusing on veteran suicide. It's a awareness. thousand box steps. Yes, With thousand weight. thousand box steps with a weighted rockets um it was actually the the workout was done um and by chad wilkinson a navy seal um and he was training to summit mount um aconcagua in in argentina and he trained by doing um you know these weighted step ups and ended, ended up summiting the the mountain him uh, on his own and, you know, but the, the bigger story there is that, you know, he was suffering from something that made him want to take his life. And, and you know, his, his wife has, um, you know, we've gotten to know her and, and realized that, you know, there's a lot that we can do to prevent this from happening again. And, and by working with her and having her sort of, you know, lead the charge and allow us to talk about this has been a, a real honor for us. So I think, you know, that's what we're most, you know, amped up about and most like, you know, 
working on is basically like this is this is a really important topic, uh, you, you know, veteran or not, and to be able to to be a part of that is feels feels really special and important. So that's something that we are you know, getting more involved in this second year. This will be the second year that it's done. And, you know, it's just a really amazing workout. It's intense, it's hard, but it's simple, it's scalable, and you can talk while you're doing it. And, you know, our thought is that, you know, people need people and they need people that they can trust and confide in and share these sort of moments with and, you know, sweat together, you know, work out together, feel some pain together with, and, and then that will, you know, allow them to open up and share some of the things that are, you know, hurting them and hopefully allow that to heal some at some point. So that's, that's something that we're really focused on and that's going to be in veterans day. It's a, it's a veterans day workout and we're going to do it every year until you know, the end of time or, or, or ask not to. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the, the other side is that, you know, because of the pandemic, we've really focused on the fitness and the training. And, you know, there's been really some great things that have come out of that. We, um, we are basically offering like all ty- types of different events. I mean, we have in-person cadre led events and we have, you know, um, what we're calling anti-virtual events where you can just, you know, you can do them with people, but you can do them on your own time, you know, and there's usually a, you know, a patch that you can earn or some sort of commemorative, um, you know, uh, some component of commemorative workout that's military based or something that's important to us that's going on in society. Um, and then, and, you know, and then we have, you know, uh, we have like rut clubs and what they're doing on the local level. And that's where I focus most of my time on because I, you know, I really, I really love our community. And, and I think that's where the heart of the company actually lies. Um, and these kind of grassroots small groups getting together and, you know, helping each other out, you know, just by, like I said, you know, rucking together, working out together, sharing time outside together and, and, you know, when you do that, you know, I do this on my own. I have my own ruck club. It's called the Mother Ruckers. And, you know, we, it changed. The, the nature of the ruck club changed since the pandemic. Before, we'd just drag our kids out and make them do it. And that was, that was great, but it was a lot of work. <laughs> and then in the pandemic, we realized we need to get away from our kids. We need to have one, at least one hour of the day where we can get together. And it's, yeah, we do a workout and you feel better. You feel a release from that. But but more importantly, you get to vent or you get to share when we would talk about this is bothering us or, oh, have you seen this? And just just that sort of release of of sharing something in that trusted environment it is, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's better than any drug, right? You know, yeah. you just feel so hurt and, and you feel that, you know, you, you just, it, 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 it mutes the, the troubles, you know, you can go back to your family and your kids, you feel like you have, you, you've been, your cup's been filled and you can actually, you know, help your kids out again, or you're not going to fight with your spouse and, you know, things like that. So it's that combination of the physical and the social aspect, which is so important to, to your mental, you know, wellness. 
So this is this is this is where we've been. We've been Gorak has been about this from day one, but we're we're honing. We're trying to hone the message, you know, and and trying to get better at communicating, you know, what this is all about because it it is about um, you know, it's about taking care of yourself, but also you know taking care of others, you know. It's about, you know, trying to build yourself to be a better American, a better member of your community so you can, you know, live, you know, a more fulfilling life and be a better mom or dad or, you know, colleague or spouse. And so th- these, these, this is what we're working on. Um, and this is where I'm focused a lot. So empowering those communities to, to keep doing what they're doing. And then as a sidebar, we're, we're getting back we're getting um, more into the tactical side. We've always run tactical events, um, be they, you know, on the range for firearms, um, you know, all led by our, you know, combat veterans of special operations. And, and then, um, you know, we also have some survival type courses and some land navigation and and medical um, courses that we do. But we're, we're, we've always kind of kept that as like a little bit of an arm's length, but we're bringing it more into the fold to, to basically say like, yeah, actually this is a part of who our DNA, you know, or this is a special forces founded um, company with intelligence roots. And this is, this is part of, this is part of who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I want to do, definitely want to do some of the tactical training with you guys, hundred percent. Cause I'm absolute white belt with the, my pistol. Um, with the Chad workout, I remember it, I don't know, it came out, but I saw it posted. I think it was on a Saturday. So I just posted out to our gym. Hey, tomorrow morning, which Sunday, the gym is closed. I'm going to go do this. I Mm -hmm. took my little boy who was, I think it was last year. So he would have been 12. Um, and we ended up having about eight people and we all did actually throw on a 60 pound vest to add some extra misery yeah wow but i mean again it was just one of those things where i understood exactly what it was about it wasn't about oh let's see how fast we can do this it's like let's get through this and understand the the burden that that Mm -hmm. he's carrying but Mm -hmm. with that being said i would love to actually reach out to chad's widow and see if she's at a point where she's wanting to talk about it to get her on the show too because you know it's it's something that's that's definitely a core i mean my I call the the reason I do this podcast a stop people hurting and dying podcast. So it can be nutrition, fitness, you know, but mental health That's is obviously awesome. a part of that. But yeah, I mean, rather than it it being a two dimensional thing where we're doing a workout or push ups or whatever, you know, people need to hear yeah the whole story. So I think that would be powerful too to get her on if she, if you know if it was something she's willing to do and and you know tell it because my my wife she lost her boyfriend to suicide. Oh, no. Yeah, she shot himself on um, Clearwater Beach on Sorry the phone to, to her. Yeah, so she's a suicide, you know, I don't think it was a survivor or what. Mm-hmm. The, but um, yeah, so anyway, but I mean, I th- it's it's so important that that we honor these people by picking up the gauntlet and running with it, you know, right. and trying to trying to stop that happening to the next person. I'm sorry to hear that about your your wife's um, boyfriend. I, yes, that's a good idea. We'll we'll have to connect you with Sarah to see if she's if she's ready. Um, yes, the you know as we you know get more involved with this, we're finding out sort of these interesting you know details about like the first time that event because um, it was Dave Castro came up decided to do this workout in honor of, of Chad. 
And I mean, obviously it was Chad's workout, but he had heard about it at the the funeral and decided to do it at CrossFit and got, you know, Jimmy Letchford and, and a couple others involved. And it's interesting. They, um, they set up 10 boxes and they would do a hundred step ups on each and then they'd flip the box each time to keep track. So I, I, I think we need to sort of recreate that. Um, at least for the, on the gyms, they could do that and tell that story. And, you know, and then I know, um, we're also looking cause a lot of people want to say like, how do I keep track of all the steps? Right. We're going to, we're looking to do some ranger beads that are possibly commemorative, um, to, you know, cause you can tie them on, you know, tie them onto your ruck and then keep track of, of how many steps you've done. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really it's really special. Um, and we're, like I said, just really honored to be asked to do, to be a part of it. Cause I think it's, you know, it's, we do a lot of, we do a lot of things that are important and, 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 and with the communities and with the veterans and, and those spaces, but this is, this is, this is the thinnest air I can think of. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for that. And again, this is why, you know, I'm back again, <laughs> rocking with you guys in the morning and because there are so many great people out there that are doing things for the right reasons, you know, and and, and when we are inundated, as we said, with, with companies trying to get that elusive monopoly amongst there are people that are actually just trying to bring people together, trying to yeah. you know, create positive tribes and you know, obviously, you know, making back, backpacks and shoes and, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, supplements, whatever, but the through line is to make the world better, not dominate and own the world <laughs> you know? yes. so it's, no, it's i'm so trying to refreshing. be power hungry just, just <laughs> want to help you know i mean you got to keep the lights on but at the same time you know this is we we're in for the long haul yeah, yeah. beautiful well a few of the closing questions i'd love to ask i'll throw <laughs> at you quickly the first one is is there a book that you love to recommend book or books um it can be related to our discussion today uh -huh. or completely unrelated interesting well wow well I have two. <laughs> um, I love the Zanzibar Chest by Aiden Hartley, I think. It is a fascinating look at Africa and from a, like a journalist standpoint, which is, has a lot of um, similarities with what, you know, my job was, you know, just looking for information, gathering, developing relationships with people. And so I love that book. It's magical. And I'm also a big fan of the Comoran Strike series by Robert Galbraith. I'm reading the fifth book of the series right now, but it's like a detective series set in London. It is great. It's actually a the the author's name is a pen name for J.K. Rowling. Oh, so, really? Yes, very ah. very, uh, you know, excellent writing. Characters are super well developed, and yeah, th those are both the those are those are two books I would I would recommend. Beautiful. What about a movie and or documentary? Oh goodness. <laughs> well. I'll give you two as well. <laughs> um, I do watch a lot of war movies, not just because of Jason. I like, <laughs> I like them. I think they're really intense and really well done. But Restrepo by Sebastian Younger, excellent. I'm still thinking about it. 
And I obviously like Sebastian Younger, um, you know, having read his book Tribe and some of his other work. Uh, there's another one. It's a movie, but I it kind of feels like a documentary. But no, it's a movie. It's called The Florida Project. I think you would like it. You're from, you know, living in Florida. But it's it's a beautifully done movie that I just, I can just feel, I can smell it, you know, when I'm watching it, you know, it just, it's Florida. It's where I grew up, but it's, it's a difficult movie to watch, but there's some uplifting points in it that are okay. really redeeming. Yeah. I think I've had that mentioned once before. I'm mm-hmm. going to have to look it up. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Hmm. Well, aside from Sarah Wilkinson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> definitely see it, see if she's, you know, like I said, uh, sometimes people aren't ready if it's, you know, somewhat recent. So when hmm. the time's right, we'll, we'll, we'll see and if that you, works. And you're taking people from all walks of life? Well, that's the thing about this podcast is it's diverse. You know, if we stay in our channels, then we, we miss so much greatness. Um, uh, look up David Zoll. Zoll? He, yes. Okay. Um, this is not recorded, is it? This oh is, yeah. Oh, it is. Says, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Z a h l. Yeah. So he is has built a community called Mockingbird, which is more in the theological, you know, religious space, but it is very interesting in terms of you know talking about grace and its absence and you know basically a lot of the things that we've talked about today okay i think you would you would find and he's a great podcaster beautiful i will look him up thank you so much all right well then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and go ruck what do you do to decompress when you're not rucking and running a business and being a mom um hmm. i like to read and listen to music (laughs) Brilliant. All yeah. right. Well, then for people listening, so tell me where they can find Goruck events, mm-hmm. Goruck products, and then if they want to reach out to you or follow you online. Oh, yeah. Um, well, you can find me on Instagram at Imidently. <laughs> um, we'll play on my my maiden name. And uh, Goruck, just Goruck.com. We've got lots of, lots of things, lots of stories on there. There's a blog. There's, you know, we have our Instagram, which, you know, I... I write a lot of the stuff on that. Um, and then the events are, um, you can find them on that same page, but they're actually on their separate site, but goruckevents.com. But yeah, everything's everything's there. It's great. Um, you know, we we have a internal sort of group on Facebook called Goruck Tribe, formerly known as Goruck Tough. But it's, um, you know, 23,000 people who have done our events and, it's um, a great place to connect. If you've, if you've ever done a GORUCK event, you can, you know, get on there and find like-minded people. And then, you know, I also run, you know, like I said, the RUCK, I, I manage the RUCK clubs and there's a GORUCK leaders page too. So, you know, if anyone's, you know, if you're interested in a RUCK club, like there's, you can go on our site and find, if to see if there's a local RUCK club near you, just type in find, find a, find a RUCK club. And if there's not one near you, you can start one. And I, you know, help onboard people with that. Beautiful. Well, I just want to say thank you. I mean, 
the reason I love this podcast is like you said about the potential guests, you know, that everyone is so different. Everyone's story is so different. And sometimes I have people that are very much in my profession and their stories are, you know, more operational based, but so often they come from such a diverse spectrum. But those experiences, you know, what you see with your eyes in all these different places is so important to us as a human race, full stop. And then there's obviously there's takeaways for us in our professions as well. Yeah. Um, so I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being so generous with your time and sharing your stories today. Well, thank you. I, it's hard to say no to someone with a British accent. <laughs> 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 but thank you. I enjoyed it. You're, you're really easy to talk to. Thank you.